1: You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
2: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Remember our recent episode on Zoe and Theodora? We talked about how I had some challenging research moments, thanks to there being so many people in the Macedonian dynasty who had the same name. <laughs>
2: I do remember.
1: (laughs) Yeah. um, Today's episode is worse from that perspective. We are talking about Ptolemaic queen Arsinoe II. The Ptolemies were a Greek dynasty that ruled Egypt during the Hellenistic period, and most of that dynasty's men were named Ptolemy. For the most part, the women were named Arsinoe, Berenice, or Cleopatra. Sometimes people say Berenice Bernice, but...
2: I understand why they would land there, but that's yeah, not it. Um,
1: sometimes the women were also called Ptolemais, which was a feminine form of Ptolemy. So that's that's basically, you got four or five names to work from for the most part. And then the dynasty's family tree is also pretty convoluted. Arsinoe's husbands included her half-brother, Ptolemy Caranos, and her full brother, Ptolemy II. Of course, we're going to be talking more about that. Of course, these repetitive names and the challenges that they create are not why I chose Arsinoe for this episode. The Hellenistic period stretched from the death of Alexander the Great to the establishment of the Roman Empire, and it's just, it's not really a period we have talked about that often on the show. And in a lot of ways, Arsinoe II really set the standard for the generations of Ptolemaic queens that followed her. Also, just as a heads up, as was the case with Zoe and Theodora, uh, there's a lot of killing in this episode, including the murders of children.
2: Arsinoe's father was Ptolemy I Soter, meaning savior. He had been a companion and advisor to Alexander Third of Macedon, later becoming one of Alexander's bodyguards and eventually one of his generals. Alexander was, of course, also known as Alexander the Great. That empire was huge. Stretch from Greece and Egypt in the west to the Indus River and the Himalayan mountains in the east.
1: Alexander's empire did not survive his death in 323 BCE, though. When Alexander died, his wife Roxanne was pregnant, but she had not given birth yet. And he also had a disabled half brother who was still living. But beyond that, Alexander had no direct successor. He did not name anyone to follow him either. He just said that the empire should go to the strongest or the fittest, depending on the translation that you're reading.
2: Some of Alexander's generals and advisors wanted to wait for Roxanne to give birth to see if she would have a son, and she did. But soon they were dividing up the empire among themselves, becoming satraps or governors of various territories. Although some of these satraps were at least ostensibly holding territory on behalf of Alexander's surviving kin, his half-brother was murdered in 317 BCE, and his son with Roxanne was murdered in 309. By 306, these diatici, or successors, were consolidating territory and presenting themselves as kings instead of generals or provincial governors. Uh, I just want to say I have heard at
1: least four different pronunciations of this, of the successors from from different people who should know what they are talking about. I've heard diatiki, diatikai, diatikoi, which is more like how it was pronounced in Greek. It's really all over the place. For Ptolemy's part, after Alexander's death, he became the satrap of Egypt, and then he expanded his territory from there through marriages and through military conquest including wars against some of the other Dyatokite. And really, this whole period was incredibly chaotic. It was full of all kinds of disagreements and infighting and a series of wars that stretched from 322 to 281 BCE. Some of those will come up again later.
2: Ultimately, Ptolemy became king of Egypt and Macedonia and founded the Ptolemaic dynasty, which controlled Egypt for nearly 300 years. His public works projects included the Library at Alexandria and the Lighthouse of Alexandria, which is described as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world.
1: Ptolemy also stole Alexander's body as it was being taken back to Macedonia to be buried. He took it to the Egyptian city of Memphis and then eventually to Alexandria where he had it entombed. This tomb became a focal point for the cult of Alexander, which Ptolemy made into a state cult And Ptolemy used the cult, the worship in the cult, the presence of Alexander's remains in Alexandria, all of that together to reinforce the idea that he and his dynasty were the legitimate
2: rulers of Egypt. But neither Ptolemy nor the rest of his dynasty ever assimilated with the Egyptian population that they were ruling. Although Ptolemy initially lived in Memphis, which was one of Egypt's oldest cities, he ultimately moved to Alexandria, which Alexander had founded and which was culturally more aligned with Greece. The Ptolemies kept up a fairly insular existence in Alexandria, and they retained their Greek identities throughout the dynasty. This included generally marrying other Macedonian Greeks, although it's possible, but not conclusively documented, that there may have been high-ranking Egyptians among the king's wives or concubines toward the end of the dynasty.
1: This dynasty ended with Cleopatra VII, who is typically just known as Cleopatra. She was the daughter of Ptolemy XII and also married to her brother, Ptolemy XIII, She was the only Ptolemaic ruler to learn the Egyptian language or to really take any effort at all to learn about the people she was ruling.
2: Especially in the first generations after Alexander's death, Hellenistic rulers were typically polygamous. Kings had multiple wives simultaneously. Queens, however, did not have multiple husbands. Ptolemy was no exception. He had four wives. Thais, Articama, Eurydice, Berenice. Berenice was Arsinoe II's mother, and she had two other children with Ptolemy, Arsinoe's sister Philotera and her brother Ptolemy II. There were also lots of half-siblings through their father's other wives.
1: These multiple marriages caused
2: all kinds of chaos
1: within the Ptolemaic dynasty and then elsewhere in the Hellenistic world. In other episodes about royals, we've talked about men who rose to power or at least tried to rise to power by marrying a king's widow. But if a king had multiple wives, that meant there were multiple possible paths to the throne through his surviving widows. This is especially true if none of those women were recognized as the king's primary or lead wife, which was the case in most of these marriages during the Hellenistic period, Instead of having sort of a formal chief or lead wife, there was this more informal, ever-shifting set of favorites and alliances.
2: And that same was true for the king's heirs. If he had multiple sons by multiple women, then which one was supposed to be first in line for the throne? What if the king did have a clearly favored wife, but his oldest son had been born to one of the other wives? Or what if the king thought the best person to rule was not his oldest son, or the son of his favorite wife, but a younger son born to someone less esteemed. You can see how this gets very complicated in a hurry. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Many of Alexander's successors
1: addressed this problem by choosing a son to be their co-ruler. They intended that son to eventually take the throne, but this was really more about smoothing the transition from one king to the next than, like, formally permanently designating an heir and then the process of determining who that co-ruler would be and keeping him in that position that could all be really fraught the king's wives were continually focused on elevating the status of their sons over those of the other wives and also if a king died unexpectedly without having chosen a co-ruler then that left everything just totally unsettled
2: In other words, there was a lot of chaos within the Ptolemaic dynasty and outside of it, thanks to infighting among the diaticai, conflicts with kingdoms and administrations that had not been part of Alexander's empire, and these multiple marriages and potential lines of succession. And
1: that brings us back to Arsinoe. She was born sometime between 318 and 311 BCE, Most sources put it somewhere around 316, but there's just no documentation of her birth at all. This year is really a best-guess estimate based on the year of her first marriage. She was probably born in Memphis, but would have still been a child when Ptolemy moved the family to Alexandria. That happened around 311 BCE.
2: And we're going to get to her life, but first we are going to pause for a sponsor break.
3: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all
1: As we said before the break, Arsinoe spent most of her childhood and youth in Alexandria. Her brothers and half-brothers were educated through tutors, and it's possible that she and her sister and her half-sisters shared in that education as well, but we don't really know for sure.
2: Really, we know almost nothing about Arsinoe's childhood or upbringing, but we do know that her family's position at court was not all that secure. As we said earlier, there was a lot of jockeying among the king's wives and sons as they tried to establish a line of succession among all of those assorted marriages and families. While Arsinoe was in Alexandria, her mother, Berenice, wasn't at the top of this hierarchy. Instead, Ptolemy I favored his first wife, Eurydice, and her son, Ptolemy Carinos, was, as a consequence, the presumed successor to the throne.
1: Another source of instability in Arsinoe's childhood would have been the ongoing warfare among the Diaticai. In 301 BCE, Ptolemy, united with Lysimachus, Seleucus I, Nicator, and Cassander, against Antigonus I and his son Demetrius I. Antigonus and Demetrius ruled Western Asia. The battle between all these forces took place at Ipsus, and Ptolemy and his allies were victorious, thanks in part to elephants that were contributed by Marian Emperor Chandragupta. We talked about Chandragupta's alliance with Seleucus in our episode on Ashoka the Righteous back in May of 2020.
2: This victory led to a whole string of marriages among the four victorious diaticai and their relatives. This included Arsinoe's marriage to Lysimachus in about 300 BCE. Lysimachus was king of Thrace, and he also took control of what had been Antigonus's territory after the Battle of Ipsus.
1: Arsinoe was probably in her teens when this marriage took place, and Lysimachus was in his 50s or 60s. And although it was pretty common for men to marry younger women... This age difference was a lot more dramatic than usual, and that led to a lot of really derisive jokes and unflattering depictions of both of them, basically with her being branded as a gold-digging schemer and him as a doddering old man. Even though, really, he was still pretty spry, he was an active military leader when they got married.
2: Arsinoe moved to the capital of Lysimachia on the Gallipoli Peninsula in what is now Turkey. She and Lysimachus had three sons over the next six years. Ptolemy, born around 299 BCE, Lysimachus, born around 297, and Philip, born around 294.
1: Moving away from her father's court and her mother's subordinate position there definitely did not free Arsinoe from the kind of rivalries and infighting that she had grown up in, though. Lysimachus already had at least three other wives, Nicaea, a mastress, and a Persian woman whose name is not recorded. That last marriage had taken place during a mass wedding that Alexander the Great arranged in Susa in 324 BCE. This was a marriage of about 80 high-ranking Greek men, to Persian noble women. And it was meant to symbolically unify Greece and Persia and to create a generation of at least hypothetically loyal offspring from these marriages. Those children would be considered both Greek and Persian. Ptolemy I had also married his wife Artacama at this ceremony.
2: Although she started out in a more subordinate position, Arsinoe's status during her marriage to Lysimachus rose thanks to some events that happened back in Egypt. One was that her brother, Ptolemy II, was named Ptolemy I's co-monarch in 285 BCE. There are also records of Berenice's chariot team winning at the Olympic Games. And if this was Arsinoe's mother, Berenice, she would have shared in the glory as well. It is, however, not 100% clear which Berenice this was or exactly when it happened. They read a whole paper.
1: Was <laughs> basically, which Berenice won at the Olympic Games? It sounds like a very
2: weird setup for a sitcom.
1: Regardless of whether that really was her mother, Arsinoe's name comes up in accounts of Lysimachus's deeds as king, and the names of his other wives don't. Lysimachus renamed cities after himself and his family, including Arsinoe. He also gave her control of Cassandrea in northern Greece, as well as three other smaller cities that were all along the Black Sea.
2: In 284 BCE, Lysimachus's oldest son, Agathocles, son of Nicaea, was accused of treason. Accounts of what happened contradict each other pretty dramatically. In some, Arsinoe manipulated Lysimachus into suspecting his son of plotting against him, something that she could have done to try to secure a future for her own sons. But in some accounts, Arsinoe was infatuated with Agathocles, and he rejected her— and thus she plotted against him to get revenge.
1: Yeah, There's no actual documentation of that, but it kind of ties into the whole idea that there was this gigantic age difference between her and her husband, and what if she may be like this younger, closer to her own age man at court? Other sources do not involve Arsinoe in this at all, though. They describe Lysimachus as coming to this suspicion on his own, but then kind of filtering his response threw Arsene away to distance himself from it. Or, in still other accounts, Agathocles really was plotting against his father, trying to guarantee his own position as the future king, and then that plot was discovered. <laughs> Lots of different options here, regardless of what actually happened. Agathocles was tried and executed.
2: Here's a moment where the convoluted Ptolemaic family tree really comes into play. So, just- <laughs> just brace. Agathocles' widow was Arsinoe's half-sister Lysandra, daughter of Ptolemy I and Eurydice. And to recap, Ptolemy and Eurydice's son, Ptolemy Carinos, had been Ptolemy's presumed successor before he named Arsinoe's full brother, Ptolemy II, as his co-ruler in 285. It is possible that this entire accusation against Agathocles was precipitated by Carinos joining his sister at Lysimachus's court after having been displaced from the court of Ptolemy I. If so, this whole incident may have been connected to the rivalry between Ptolemy's wives, Berenice and Eurydice, and by extension, their children.
1: After Agathocles' death, Lysandra and Carinos who we're just going to call Keranos because there are too many Ptolemies, they went to Seleucus I Nicator for aid. And that led to a war between Thrace and the Seleucid Empire. Although Lysimachus had taken control of territory in Western Asia after the Battle of Ipsus, a lot of the political leaders and people there sided with Seleucus. The war between Lysimachus and Seleucus finally ended with the Battle of Coropidium in 281 BCE, This was actually the last battle in the Wars of the Diaticai, and Lysimachus, who at
2: this point was almost 80, was killed in battle. Arsinoe was about 35 at this point, and she had accompanied Lysimachus to war, but not to the actual battle. She stayed behind in Ephesus. But that city's residents wound up siding with the Seleucids and opened the gate for the Seleucid army. Arsinoe is described as escaping the city disguised in rags while one of her attendants put on her royal garments and acted as a decoy. In some accounts, this decoy was killed, but in others, she survived. Since Arsinoe had been given control of Cassandrea and still had supporters there, she fled to that city and went into hiding.
1: This is already so much drama. But then Ptolemy Keranos turned on Seleucus. They had been in the process of conquering what was left of Arsinoe's late husband's kingdom. They had crossed the Hellespont, which is now known as the Dardanelles, into Thrace, when Charanos stabbed Seleucus to death. This may actually be what earned him the nickname Charanos, which means thunderbolt.
2: Then Ptolemy Charanos turned his attention to his half-sister, Arsinoe. We're gonna get into that after a sponsor break.
3: Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.
2: When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all
1: to recap where we were before the break because I feel like the situation is very tangled. Arsinoe had married Lysimachus, the king of Thrace, whose son, Agathocles, was tried for treason and executed. Agathocles's widow was Arsinoe's half-sister, Lysandra. And after this execution, she and her brother, Ptolemy Carinos, went to Seleucus I, Nicator, for aid. Seleucus went to war against Arsinoe's husband, Lysimachus, who was killed in battle but then Ptolemy Keranos turned against Seleucus and killed him. Meanwhile, Arsinoe fled to Cassandrea, which her late husband had given to her earlier on in that marriage. That is where we left off.
2: Although Ptolemy Caranos and Seleucus had taken a lot of the territory that Lysimachus had previously held, there were still people who were loyal to Arsinoe and her late husband. Carinos probably wanted to protect himself from those people as well as from anyone who had been loyal to Seleucus. He probably also wanted Cassandrea itself. But whatever his exact reasons were, he lay siege to that city, offering to marry his half-sister Arsinoe and adopt her children as his own. He said he would take no other wives and have no other children. Her sons would be his heirs. Arsinoe and Ptolemy Kerenos were both in their mid-30s at this point.
1: Arsinoe really had no reason to trust her half-brother. Her full brother, Ptolemy II, had displaced him as the presumed heir to the Ptolemaic kingdom. He and his ally, Seleucus, had gone to war with and ultimately killed her husband. He was also literally besieging the city where she had taken refuge.
2: That's how you woo a gal, didn't you know? (laughs) But at the same time, here's the thing. She really did not have many other options. If she and her sons managed to escape Cassandrea, there was no guarantee that they would be able to make it all the way to Alexandria and to her brother's protection there before being apprehended. If she married someone with enough military and political power, she might be able to defend herself against Carinos. But although high-ranking women in this era weren't generally forced to marry without their consent... They also were not people who negotiated these unions. Their male relatives did that.
1: You could argue that Carinos kind of did an end run around that whole thing. Right. By negotiating a marriage with his half-sister himself. But regardless, Arsinoe agreed to marry Ptolemy Carinos. She did the one thing that she really could to try to protect herself in this situation, which was that she demanded that the marriage ceremony be conducted
2: in public... Caranos agreed. But then, immediately afterward, he murdered her two young sons, Lysimachus and Philip. Her oldest son, Ptolemy, escaped. It's possible he just was not there when his younger brothers were murdered. Uh, he was the only one of her sons who had reached adulthood by this point, And there is some suggestion that he and his mother were estranged in some way. Arsinoe was forced to flee once again, this time taking refuge in Samothrace.
1: Accounts are pretty contradictory about what Karinos' motivations were in killing his nephews, whether that really had been his plan from the beginning. Whatever it was, though, he did not wind up remaining king of all this territory for long. He married Arsinoe in about 280 BCE, and the following year, his territory was attacked by the Gauls, and he was killed
2: in battle. Eventually, sometime between 280 and 276 BCE, Arsinoe returned to Egypt from Samothrace, possibly taking her son Ptolemy with her. It had been at least 20 years at that point since Arsinoe had been in Alexandria. Her brother, Ptolemy II, was now the king, and his court had been through its own allegations of treachery. His first wife, Arsinoe I... Just to keep it confusing, had been exiled under suspicion of plotting against him. Arsinoe the I was the daughter of Arsinoe the second's husband Lysimachus, and although it is not clear which of his wives was Arsinoe the I's mother, she was much younger than Arsinoe the second, and it's possible that elder Arsinoe may have even helped raise her. This timeline, is really, really fuzzy, but it seems that Arsinoe I's suspicion and exile happened before Arsinoe II returned to Alexandria, although some sources still try to pin the whole thing on Arsinoe II. A few years after returning to Egypt, in about 273
1: BCE, Arsinoe II married her brother, Ptolemy II. And the details of this marriage aren't really known. They had no children together, although Arsinoe II did adopt Arsinoe I's children as her own. Ptolemy did not take any other wives after marrying his sister, although he did have several concubines. Arsinoe and Ptolemy were both given the moniker Philadelphoi, or sibling-loving.
2: Arsinoe's earlier marriage to her half-brother Ptolemy Carinos had been unusual in the Greek world, but such a marriage wasn't totally unheard of, and it was legally permitted in some places. But marrying her full brother, Ptolemy II, would have been far more unusual among the Greeks. It wasn't really unusual in the Egyptian society the Ptolemies were ruling, though, at least not for Egyptian royalty. We talked about this in our episode on Hatshepsut back in 2019. An Egyptian king often took a sister or half-sister as his great royal wife, with that pairing echoing back to an Egyptian creation story. In that story, the god Atum had no partner and created a pair of sibling deities, who in turn created another pair of sibling deities as their descendants, continuing that line in pairs.
1: It doesn't seem like this brother-sister marriage was as taboo in the ancient Greek world as it would be in the West today and there's really almost no surviving account of the actual Greek response to it at the time. Arsinoe and Ptolemy did take some steps to try to normalize it, though, including comparing themselves to the Greek deities Zeus and Hera, who were also married siblings. They also made the comparison to Egyptian deities Isis and Osiris, who were descendants of that chain of Egyptian sibling partners, although this was really one of the few ways that they tried to frame themselves as Egyptian
2: at all. We have no documentation of their thought process or reasoning for this marriage. It's possible that they just wanted to consolidate some of their political power, or that they thought they'd be a little more protected in a world of perpetual dynastic rivalries and infighting. Arsinoe may have thought that marrying her brother was her last chance to secure a political future for her one surviving son. There are several references to various Ptolemies in the historical record that may have been him, meaning that son, but it is not 100% clear where he wound up. It was not in the primary Ptolemaic line of succession, though. Cults
1: were a huge part of the religious and political structure of the Hellenistic world, with rulers being deified and worshipped, sometimes during their lifetimes. And this also had some roots in the Egyptian tradition of deifying royalty. Arsinoe and Ptolemy established the Theoi Adelphoi, or the cult of the royal couple. Arsinoe herself was also deified individually, probably while she was still living. Arsinoe also established an annual festival that was held in Alexandria that honored Adonis, with Ptolemy appearing in the role of Adonis and herself appearing in the role of Aphrodite.
2: Arsinoe became highly influential in Ptolemy's government. She appeared on its coins, both alone and with him. And on some of these coins, she appears to be in full pharaonic regalia, suggesting that she was regarded not just as the king's wife, but also as a pharaoh herself. This includes wearing the uraeus or royal cobra. And Arsinoe's cartouche also included a throne and described her as king of Upper and Lower Egypt. But it is not clear if that's an honorific from her lifetime or something that was bestowed on her later as a more honorary title.
1: Arsinoe also became a popular public figure during her reign. She accompanied Ptolemy on a tour of the Egyptian border and its defenses, making public appearances along the way. And one year, it's not clear which, she won a clean sweep of the equestrian events at the Olympic Games. Although her father, Ptolemy I, was the one who started the construction of the library and museum at Alexandria, some
2: sources credit Arsinoe II with actually finishing that. She also seems to have influenced foreign policy, advocating for an alliance with Greek city-states that protected their freedom from encroachment by Macedonia. This influence continued after her death. Ptolemy II outlived her, and he allied with several Greek city-states against Macedonia in the Cremonidian War. Arsinoe's memory became sort of a recruitment and public relations tool to rally support for Egypt's involvement in that war.
1: Arsinoe became the standard for future Ptolemaic queens to follow, and her marriage to her brother also became a template for later marriages in the Ptolemaic dynasty, As we've said, although the Ptolemies ruled Egypt, they never really became Egyptian. They kept their power to themselves and in the hands of Greek people. Most of the dynasty's marriages after Arsinoe and Ptolemy were between siblings, half-siblings, or cousins. And this actually seems to have influenced culture in Egypt after the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty as well. There are sibling marriages that are recorded in Roman census records in Egypt, after the end of this dynasty.
2: At least two rotundas were built in Arsinoe's honor, one in Alexandria and the other in Samothrace. The rotunda in Samothrace was built in her lifetime, and it was dedicated by her. But the inscription detailing who her husband was at the time has not survived. So it's possible that it was built during the reign of Lysimachus to commemorate the alliance between the Ptolemaic dynasty and Thrace or during the reign of Ptolemy to commemorate Samothrace having sheltered Arsinoe after she had to flee from her half-brother. There are also a lot of coins that bear her image, as well as carvings, statues, statuettes, and other depictions that are either of her or believed to be of her.
1: The date of Arsinoe II's death is uncertain. One stele lists it as in the 15th year of Ptolemy II's reign, which would have been 270 BCE, But other sources say it was in the 17th year, or 268, so she would have been in her mid-40s. Both her cult and the cult of the royal couple continued to worship her after her death. Her brother also named streets in Alexandria after her and renamed the city of Fayum and its surrounding district for her as well. Arsinoe also became a popular name for daughters of priestly Egyptian families.
2: But after the end of the Ptolemaic dynasty... Arsinoe II mostly vanished from literature and art. Instead, Cleopatra's sister Arsinoe became the more well-known woman with that name.
1: Yeah, you can um, accidentally get a whole bunch of stuff that you bookmark that turns out to be about Cleopatra's sister <laughs> and not the subject <laughs> the wrong, of your podcast. The wrong Arsinoe. Uh, we will end this with a quote from Elizabeth Donnelly Carney from the introduction to Arsinoe of Egypt and Macedon, A Royal Life. This is really the only modern English-language biography of her. It's from an academic press, but it's pretty accessible and also quite short because there's, like, not a lot that we actually know about Arsinoe. She wrote, quote, "...looking at Arsinoe's life is a bit like trying to meet someone at a big party, but somehow always missing them, though perhaps getting a whiff of their perfume and hearing a lot of stories about them." In a sense, our Sinaway is always in the other room. I really liked that quote. And I think uh-huh. it summed up some of my challenges
2: researching this episode. <laughs> um, do you have less challenging listener mail? I do. Uh,
1: so this listener mail posed a question, and um, I don't know that we'll ever tackle the topic that they suggested, but it was an interesting enough question to me that I wanted to read it. And uh, it is from Eva. Eva says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a few months late or very early sending this idea for a holiday episode, but here it is. Bear with me. Every time I watch that scene in A Christmas Story, when the father breaks out a hammer and pry bar to open the giant wooden crate containing the infamous leg lamp, I think to myself, I have never in my life received a delivery in a wooden crate. Not at Christmas Not in a year of pandemic lifestyle supply delivery. Not ever. Why is this? Presumably the answer is corrugated cardboard boxes. And then I wonder, weren't corrugated cardboard boxes around in the 1960s when this movie was set? To which the answer is, I have no idea. It seems like a simple low-tech technology that you'd expect to have been around for a long time, And then I go to the liquor store to get boxes for moving my books like you do, and I see $10 bottles of wine, and I wonder how much that same bottle cost back in the day, whenever it was, with the extra cost of shipping it around in wooden crates, presumably built into the cost. And then I get into the mental exercise of comparing the environmental impact of wooden crates versus cardboard boxes, extra fuel and exhaust to ship wooden crates versus the disposable nature of the cardboard boxes, And I get stuck because you can reuse cardboard boxes over and over until they wear out or get damaged. People just don't reuse them much exactly because they're so wonderfully light and cheap that we take them utterly for granted. But if a Christmas story is to be believed, They've only been introduced in, like, my boss's lifetime, so how is their impact so invisible to us? Our corrugated cardboard boxes, a classic textbook case study that all the material scientists know about and no one else does, like 3M Scotch Tape is a classic case study in businessy circles, and the Snow-slash-Whitehead Cholera Outbreak is the progenitor of infographics, or is it like the happy birthday song, where it's so elegantly simple that everyone assumes it sprang forth from the primordial ooze fully formed and ready to ship? Inquiring minds want to know, so that's my holiday episode suggestion, the history of corrugated cardboard boxes. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the email goes on a bit from this, but um, to have time to answer the question, I'm going to stop it there. So thank you, Eva, uh, for this email. I actually have gotten things shipped in boxes like that. One of them, uh, it was from one of those places where you you opened your mail, and there's a surprising and strange thing there that's part of a mystery. And as you solve the mystery, at the end, you get something special that's like the, the sort of capstone piece to this mysterious thing that you have unfolded through your uh, through the things you've gotten in the mail. And it, uh, the, the final thing that we got was, was in a wooden crate, very like that. Um, also, when I was a child, my brother and I desperately wanted a playhouse. Playhouses are very expensive. What my father did was cut a door <laughs> into a shipping crate that had been used for a refrigerator. Um, and that became our playhouse. So um, neither of those things would I call a normal shipping circumstance. What I really think is happening in a Christmas story is that that shipping crate, which looks like like a museum shipping crate, uh, like that's part of the joke that that is like, here is your box of very carefully
2: packed leg lamp. <laughs> what in the world um because it is a precious artifact tracy that's why yeah it's a, it's <laughs>
1: incredibly important it it looks a lot more like you would see uh, like an antiquity shipped to a collector than yeah. an ordinary thing that you would have shipped to your home um cardboard however very briefly uh cardboard was developed in the mid 19th century and by the early 20th century cardboard boxes were coming into common use so by the time this um this film takes place there were plenty of cardboard boxes um i really do think it is that is for comedic effect to hype up what is the magical wonder that is in this box and it is a leg lamp leg lamp <laughs> Um, I don't know if you had something you wanted to add with that, Holly.
2: No, I'm suddenly thinking about how many, um, when she mentioned shipping alcohol, how many places, uh, were really just making alcohol for local consumption for a long time. Oh, yeah. Being shipped around. That Mm -hmm. idea of, like, sourcing alcohol from different magical places hasn't, is a little modern, but not entirely. Um, yeah. Yeah, that would be an interesting and fun study rabbit hole to go down.
1: Yeah, well, and that that made me think about, like, the way less uh, happy-sounding, like, the, the, uh, the rum trade and how that was connected to both sugar and slavery. But that was also, like, a, you know, 18th and 19th century shipping things a long way on a boat.
2: Right, not quite the kind of direct-to-consumer packaging no. <laughs> that
1: we would think of now.
2: Not at all although also often distilled locally so that people that landed on those islands oh, yeah, that yeah. had been at sea would have it as yeah. part of their healthy regimen
1: <laughs> um i've it's i don't know i uh, that suddenly took me down the mental rabbit hole of um uh, the various places near me that have started delivering from their uh you know their their liquor and beer and wine stores during the pandemic, Um, something I have taken advantage of during these
2: times.
1: (laughs) So thank you again for this delightfully written email, Eva. I hope we have um, have answered your question satisfactorily. I don't know that we will do uh, an episode on the history of cardboard, but um, I did think this was a fun email to, uh, to read and talk about. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, or are at History podcasts at iheartradio.com and then all over social media at Missing History. So you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. Uh, you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and Apple Podcasts and anywhere else that you get your podcasts.
0: Visit TomboyX.com. Sumo Play.